If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we've got to together, surrender our lives. And say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. The Radical Together Podcast, with teaching from David Platt. Today, in light of the outbreak of concern regarding the recent presidential executive order, we're breaking away from our originally scheduled sermon to hopefully offer some timely biblical insight into the complex refugee and immigration issues that we face today. The number of people displaced, put in danger, or forced from their homes right now is historically unprecedented. In Syria alone, half of the population, that's 11 million people, have either been displaced or killed. Many people are divided over what to do with refugees, and the issue is undoubtedly complex. President Donald Trump's recent executive order, entitled Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States, has reignited the debate. Regardless of your view of this particular executive order, as followers of Christ, we have an obligation to minister to refugees, for these individuals are made in God's image, and many are in desperate need of the gospel. We pray that today's sermon offers you timely and biblical insight into the complex refugee and immigration issues we face today. Here's David with a sermon entitled, A Biblical View of the Refugee Crisis from Acts 17. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 17. It's the nations that I, I want to point you this morning and specifically to one of the greatest humanitarian crises in all of history, the global refugee crisis. It is a crisis of unprecedented proportions to 60 million people. Never before in history have so many people been recorded as being displaced, put in danger, or forced from their homes. Syria alone, population of about 22, 23 million people, over, well, around half of them have either been displaced or killed. In recent days through civil war, over 4 million of them fleeing to neighboring countries for safety. So I share numbers like that um, simply to show the enormity of this crisis because I fear that most people in our churches and maybe even in this room are paying little to no attention to this crisis. Or if we are paying attention to it, we're looking at it through the lens of political punditry. Endless debates about whether or not we should allow refugees into our country. It is a sure sign of American self-centeredness that we would take the suffering of 13 million people and then turn it into an issue that's all about us. But what's so disheartening is not the response of our culture. It's the response of the church or lack thereof, for the majority of the church here, there is 
little to no response to be seen. And then if there is any response, it seems to be coming from a foundation of fear, not of faith. Flowing from a view of the world that is far more American than it is biblical. Far more concerned with the preservation of our country than it is the accomplishment of the Great Commission. So this morning, as I prayed about what we might dive into in chapel, based on the Word of God, I want to call you on this campus to open your eyes and your hearts. The global refugee crisis is not an issue about which Christians can sit still or stay silent. So let me me show you a, a video. This is just a simple news clip that we're seeing during these days about this crisis. Watch this with me. With the Arab Spring underway in 2011, the people of Syria started asking for basic reforms of their own. That simple demand led to Bashar Assad's brutal crackdown. Within months, Syria had gone from street demos to civil war. More than 200,000 dead so far, and half its population of about 20 million on the move around Syria and outside the country. First to makeshift camps, where now more than 4 million refugees are overwhelming Syria's neighbors, Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey. So then, those with the means paid unscrupulous smugglers to take them across the Mediterranean, joining refugees fleeing war and persecution from Africa, Afghanistan, Iran. It is incredible to see with your own eyes a boat like that, not big. It's been crammed with 290 people. Of course, these are a fraction of the tens of thousands who've made this perilous journey. First, Europe tried to rescue them, then they stopped, thinking that would stop the tide. And when it didn't, and when more than 800 were killed in a single sinking, Europe couldn't look away anymore. We think we must absolutely avoid the Mediterranean will become a cemetery. is a, a sea, not a cemetery. And still they came, after making it by boat to Italy and Greece. They came by land to Macedonia, Serbia and Hungary. And when they were denied transport there, they just got up and walked west. A desperate tide of humanity that finally pricked Europe's conscience. We need to know how the Bible informs the way we look at pictures like that. We need to know how the Bible informs the way we view crises like this in the world. And as leaders in the church, we need to show how the Bible informs the way we view crises like this in the world. And then we need to act accordingly. So for the next few minutes, what I want to do, instead of going to one passage of Scripture, as is the normal and right diet of biblical exposition, 
I want to bring God's word from different angles to bear on the refugee crisis. So we're going to read Acts 17, a couple of verses in a moment, and then uh, go all over scripture. Amidst all the debate in the world right now concerning how to respond to the refugee, I'm convinced that our greatest need is to hear from God's word. To see how God relates to, how God responds to the refugee. What is most needed in our culture, before that, what is most needed even in the church, what is most needed is a God-centered view of the refugee crisis. So I want to start by pointing us to biblical truths, so specifically five biblical truths that are all over Scripture concerning God and the refugee. And those five truths, I think, will lead us to five exhortations that I would give to us in this room when it comes to our lives and our families and our churches. Acts chapter 17, verse 25, verse 24, sorry. Paul and Mars Hill says these words, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Let me pray. God, we want to see as you see. We want to view the world around us in the way that you view the world around us. So help us, we pray. In the next few moments, by your Spirit, please bring your word to bear on our minds, on our hearts, and how we view what you're seeing happening right now in Syria and northern Iraq and Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan. Help us to see what you see, even right now, in the middle of the Aegean Sea on a boat. So, give us the mind of Christ, we pray, and help us to obey according to whatever you show us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Truth number one, so five biblical truths informing a God-centered view of the refugee crisis. Uh, Truth number one, God reigns sovereign over all things. That's first biblical foundation. God reigns sovereign over all things. As, As we look at all that is going on in the world around us, we must remember that God is sovereign over it all. This is the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end. God is sovereign over nature. The wind blows at his bidding. The sun shines according to his command. The stars in the sky appear, Isaiah says, because our God brings them out one by one and calls them each by name by his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. There's not a speck of dust on the planet that exists apart from the sovereignty of our God. He's sovereign over all nature, and he's sovereign over nations. He charts, our God charts the course of countries. 
He holds the rulers of the earth in the palm of his hand. And this is really good news. It's good news to know that Assad in Syria is not sovereign overall. It's good news to know that Vladimir Putin in Russia is not sovereign overall. Neither is Kim Jong-un in North Korea or Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel or Barack Obama in the United States. Our God is sovereign over all of them. It's good news to know that no matter what happens in 2016, neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump are sovereign over all. God is. God is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over even suffering in this world. Remember the book of Job, where God is called the Almighty. He's called the Almighty 31 different times. The whole story is told in such a way that it's clear. God is sovereign over everything. Satan is sovereign over nothing. In Job 1, the accuser appears before God with limited ability. He must be allowed by God to afflict. Amidst all the mystery that shrouds that scene, one conclusion is clear. The power of Satan is limited by the prerogative of God. Satan can't do a thing apart from divine permission. You see it in Job. Satan is on a leash and God holds the reins. God is almighty, Satan is not. God is omnipotent, Satan is not. God is omniscient, Satan is not. God is omnipresent, Satan is not. God is sovereign, Satan is not sovereign. Satan is never sovereign. When Job is afflicted with sores, it's not Satan who has ultimate power over Job's health. God does. And ultimately, God is sovereign over life and death. Satan is not sovereign over whether or not Job lives or dies. God is. If God wills, James 4.15 says we live. If God doesn't will, we die. Job makes clear God is sovereign over comfort and God is sovereign over calamity. He says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Not the Lord gives and Satan takes away. Job tells his wife, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And the Bible says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So we must be careful in our lives not to sin with our lips. Or even with our thoughts. When we see suffering like this in the world today, entire theologies have developed that claim that God is doing the best he can under the circumstances, but ultimately he doesn't have control over evil and suffering around us. But ladies and gentlemen, let me remind us, amidst suffering in this world, it will not bring much comfort to consider that Satan is in control. If the power of God is limited, then how can we be sure of any promises he has made? Obviously, there's mystery in Scripture over how God's sovereignty intertwines with man's responsibility, but the Bible is crystal clear on this. God is in control, and Satan is controlled. God is sovereign, Satan is subordinate. This is not some kind of Star Wars dualism where good and evil are equal forces warring against one another. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not dualism. This is domination. And it's all over Scripture. When Job is afflicted, God is in control. When Joseph is sold into slavery, God is in control. When evil kings are acting in Israel's history, God is still in control. When religious leaders and Roman officials sentence Jesus to death and crucify him on a cross, God is in control of it all. When Christians are preaching the gospel to the nations and being killed in the process, God is in control. When we get to the end of the Bible and we see the cosmic battle for the souls of men and women throughout history, praise God, He is in control. 
God is in control. Satan is subordinate to him in every page of the Bible, on every page of history, including even the refugee crisis that surrounds us. That leads to truth number two. God reigns sovereign over all things. And two, God oversees the movement of all peoples. God oversees the movement of all peoples. This is simply the outgrowth of the first truth, but most clearly explained by what we just read from Paul in Acts chapter 17. He made from one nation, one man from every nation of mankind, living on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So that truth is obvious throughout Old Testament narrative. As God raises up peoples and sends them here, he disperses nations and scatters them there. At his appointed time, God sends Israel to Egypt. At his appointed time, God brings Israel from Egypt. God orchestrates the exile from Jerusalem, and then he orchestrates the return to Jerusalem. And then you get to the New Testament, we see God using even suffering. Remember the stoning of Stephen. He uses suffering to scatter the church from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, eventually to the ends of the earth. So when we look at the migration of peoples due to a multiplicity of reasons, we need to recognize that it's all ultimately occurring under the governance of God. And Acts 17 says God's doing it for a reason, so that people might seek him, perhaps feel their way toward him, and find him. So, so much could be said here, but make no mistake, God aims to be sought, found, and known, and enjoyed by all the peoples of the world, and he oversees their travels toward that end. In his goodness, God turns even the tragedy of forced migration into the triumph of future salvation. It's the sovereign goodness of God that leads into a third truth. That God, so here's truth number three, God generally establishes government for the protection of all people. God generally establishes government for the protection of all people. This is Romans 13. Makes clear. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So what is Romans 13 teaching there? Romans 13 is clearly teaching that government exists under God's authority to promote good and to restrain evil. In God's design, in his sovereign design, the purpose of government is to protect the people's good. And this is important here because we know that any serious thought about the refugee crisis that surrounds us 
must take into account the role of government under God. And not just the role, but the responsibilities of government, particularly in a representative government like ours. We have a say in the leaders we elect and the laws they create, which means we have a responsibility to leverage our lives and leadership as citizens of a government for the promotion of the good. It's why God instituted governments, for the protection of all people. But then, okay, but then we've got to take it a step further. So yes, our God generally establishes government for the good of all people. But at the same time, so this is truth number four, God specifically commands his church to provide for his people. God specifically commands his church to provide for his people. So then, Paul says in Galatians 6, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, obviously, Paul's not saying that we shouldn't care for all people. Let us do good to everyone, he says. But we can't miss the priority of provision here and other places in Scripture for those who are of the household of faith, the people of God, the men and women with whom God identifies himself, the church of Jesus Christ, his body, his bride. Dr. Aiken mentioned, I just recently celebrated the 16th anniversary. My wife and Heather and I were married fairly young at the end of college, and we, we looked young. I, I remember going on our honeymoon, and there were uh, uh, a few couples that came up to us and asked us if our parents knew where we were. <laughs> it's like, we're married, man. So... 16 years, there's no question. I'm still young in marriage, and I have a lot to learn. But this I have learned. There is an attachment to, an identification with my wife that is wonderfully unique in such a way that when she hurts, I hurt. And when she's in pain, I'm in pain. And if someone were to hurt her, they would undoubtedly be hurting me. And so we see in Scripture in a far greater way Jesus' intimate identification with his bride. You remember Acts 9, Saul, Saul says, Why are you persecuting me? Saul hadn't even met Jesus. But the implication was obvious. When you persecute the church, you persecute Christ. Isn't this why we have that well-known passage on social justice in Matthew 25? Remember, Jesus said, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And we know this is not a general reference to just anyone who is hungry or thirsty, a stranger or sick. This is a specific reference to these my brothers. 
needy members of the family of Christ, the household of faith. Again, not to the total exclusion of those who are a part uh, outside of the church. We love all our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus makes that clear. That even includes our enemies. But let us do good to everyone, Scripture says, especially those who are of the household of faith. Consequently, it's altogether right for the church today to consider how to care specifically for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the middle of crises. We must not turn a deaf ear to brothers and sisters in Christ in crisis. Such care for brothers and sisters who are refugees is right, even required. Why? Because of the character of God. Truth number five. Truth number five. God seeks, shelters, serves, and showers the refugee with his grace. God seeks, he shelters, he serves, and God showers the refugee with his grace. Remember the book of Ruth? Elimelech, the Israelite, his wife Naomi, along with their two sons, are driven from their homeland due to famine. They migrate to Moab because of famine. They find themselves in this foreign land amid a forbidden people who began when Lot had an incestuous relationship with his, with his daughter. Generations later, Moabite women seduced Israelite men into sexual immorality and 24,000 Israelites were struck dead. The message was clear. Don't go near Moabite women. They're not allowed it into the Lord's assembly down to the 10th generation. Yet now Elimelech and Naomi's sons, Malon and Kilion, marry Moabite women. And not long after that in the narrative, all three men, the father and two sons, die, and Naomi is left with two Moabite daughters-in-law. She returns to Bethlehem, begs her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. One obliges the other, Ruth, says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So a Moabite woman soon finds herself in an Israelite town, desperate for food and family. Sound familiar? Enter Boaz, the Lord of the harvest, who sees her working in his field one day. And upon being told who she is, a Moabite woman, instead of kicking her out of his field, he seeks her out in his field. He goes to her. He greets her. He shelters her from harm, promises her safety. Then he does the unthinkable. He stoops to serve her. He invites the Moabite woman to his table where she enjoys a nice meal of roasted grain with him. Leads to a showering of grace as Boaz gives Ruth 30 to 50 pounds of food to take home, worth at least half a month's wages, all of which sets the stage for a romance of redemption that follows in which Boaz eventually takes Ruth as his wife. Together they have a child whose line will one day lead to the quintessential kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. So why do we have this Bible book named after a Moabite woman? At at least one of the answers to that question is because we have a God who wants us to know how much he cares for the outcast and the oppressed, the stranger and the refugee. 
It's one of the key phrases in the entire book. Ruth chapter 2 verse 12. As Boaz pronounces a blessing on the otherwise forbidden Moabite woman, he says, a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. There is refuge, the book of Ruth shows us. There's refuge under the wings of God. So don't miss it. Boaz is not just a model of goodwill in this story. He is a mirror of God. Boaz is the agent God uses to show how he seeks out the oppressed, how God shelters them under the shadow of his wings, how God serves the outcast at his table, how God showers the needy with his grace, ultimately how God is faithful to care for the forbidden foreigner. And so we, brothers and sisters, are compelled to do the same. We're compelled to reflect our Redeemer. So what should we do then? This is how, who God is. This is how God is reigning. What should we do? How, how do we live? How do we lead in light of a God who reigns sovereign over all things, orchestrates the movement of all peoples, the God who's established government for the good of all people, protection of all people, the church as a means of provision for his people, the God who seeks, shelters, serves, and showers the refugee with his grace. Five exhortations. One, let us speak the gospel clearly. First and foremost, brothers and sisters, let's point people, refugees and the church, to the glory, goodness, greatness, and grace of our God in the gospel. Let's point people to the good news that God loves them so much. Think about good news for the refugees specifically. God loves them so much that he has come to them. Do we we see the beauty of the gospel? The good news of a God who actually identifies with the refugee? He came as a baby boy, and the first story we have about him following his birth is his exodus to Egypt, driven to a country, foreign country, by a murderous king. This God is not distant from us. He's not detached from the people we are and the pain we experience. No, God is present with us. He's no stranger to our suffering. He's familiar with our pain. He has not left the outcasts and the oppressed alone in a world of sin and suffering. He's come to us, and he has conquered for us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has severed the root of suffering, sin itself. He died an unjust death, falsely accused as a crucified criminal, and he rose from the dead, now exalted as a conquering king. And for everyone who turns from their sin and puts their trust in him, he will save and satisfy them forever. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the greatest news in all the world, and refugees need to hear it. They need to hear it. But they won't hear it unless we go and we preach it. Do we realize the unprecedented opportunities that exist right now for Syrians to hear the gospel because of this refugee crisis? Doors are open right now around the world, Middle East and European countries that have never been open. We dare not sit back and spend all our time debating whether or not a few of them can come to us. Church of Jesus Christ, it's time for a lot of us to go to them. 
to go to other Middle Eastern and European nations, to refugees where they are, to hear their stories, to meet their needs. Yes, to meet their needs. So not to shrink back from the Gospels. We never forget that as vitally important as food and water, clothing and shelter may be, the Gospel will always be people's greatest need. But we go, we meet their needs, and we share the greatest news in all the world with them. Are there risks in going and proclaiming the gospel to refugees today? Well, sure there are. But where in the world did we get the idea that Christianity is devoid of risk? It is only an Americanized Christianity that prioritizes security in this world over proclamation of God's word. If anyone would come after me, anyone, this is not... Uh, For the mature in faith, this is elementary. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ, self is no longer our God. Therefore, safety is no longer our concern. We go and we preach the gospel, knowing that others' lives depend on it and believing that it's worth our lives for it. So let's go there and here for that matter. Thousands of refugees, I was looking this morning, have been resettled right here in North Carolina. Could it be that God is orchestrating the movement of peoples so that you, your family, your church here might be the means by which some of them hear the gospel for the first time? He's moving that he might be found by them. Let's proclaim the gospel clearly. Second exhortation, let's pray to God earnestly. Let's pray to God earnestly. This God, the God who reigns sovereign over all things, orchestrates the movement of all peoples. He has ordained prayer as a powerful means by which you and I can participate with him in the accomplishment of his purposes in the world. So remember Exodus 32, Moses, when the people of God were in dire need. Moses didn't sit idly by thinking God is sovereign, he'll do whatever he pleases. No, Moses acted. Moses' faith in God's sovereignty drove him to his knees where he begged for God's grace upon the people. And Moses, don't miss it, Moses' pleas for mercy became the means of God's provision for the needy. So with us, our prayers matter. Our prayers matter. Prayer to this God matters. When we pray for the refugee, we're participating in God's provision for the refugee. So let's be active in our quiet times, in our time alone in the prayer closet. Let's be active in our times with family, gathering together at night to pray with our kids for kids like them. We're on boats right now. Let's pray as churches earnestly, continually for his mercy to be made known to people, whether they're riding on a raft in the middle of the GNC or they're sleeping on that street outside of Hungary's border. Let's plead for God's provision, believing that the God who hears our cry will answer according to his compassion. Let's proclaim the gospel clearly. Let's pray to God earnestly. Let's third, let's act justly. Let's act justly. What does the Lord require of us? Micah asks, require. And the answer is not that we talk justice, but that we do justice. That we love mercy. That we walk humbly. Oh, that contrite lives before God in this room would produce courageous leadership before others beyond this room on this issue. 
Don't, don't, for, don't forget, I was reading it just the other day in my time in the Lord, how, how Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and yet have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Be warned, brothers and sisters, particularly in a seminary setting like this, not to get so consumed with biblical minutia that you begin to forsake practical ministry. It is so easy to get so focused on small things that are important. So when I I say biblical minutia, I'm not saying that it's unimportant. Everything in God's Word is extremely important and studying it rightly is extremely important. But Jesus says, do those things, but don't lose sight of the weightier things. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Tithing according to the law is important, Jesus says, but so is generous, sacrificial care for the poor and the needy. Don't get so focused on the details of preparation for ministry that you lose sight of the dire needs of people around you in the world. Let's act justly. Fourth, let us love sacrificially. Let's love sacrificially. We, we all know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? All he did for the man in need, he took him, he cared for him, he provided for him, he paid for him, he sacrificed for everything he needed without question, without hesitation. So think about this. Have you ever done that for someone? Have you ever seen someone in need and cared for them like that and sacrificed for everything they needed? Without question, without hesitation. I'm guessing you have. I'm guessing almost everybody in this room has done that for someone, and that someone is ourselves. When you or I have not been well, we've done whatever it takes. We go over the top to make sure that we're cared and provided for. And so Jesus says, love strangers like that. Love even your enemies like that. Like yourself. Let's proclaim the gospel clearly. Let's pray to God earnestly. Let's act justly. Let's love sacrificially. And ultimately, fifth exhortation, let's hope confidently. Let us hope confidently. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day when sin and suffering will be no more. There's coming a day when wars and crises will no longer exist. And in this, we place confident hope. We know that in reality, at this moment, every follower of Christ finds him or herself in a foreign land. In the words of 1 Peter and Hebrews, we are sojourners and exiles who long for a better country. We're all seeking a homeland, a city that is to come. We are migrants here, a collective multicultural citizenry of an otherworldly kingdom. So we wait and we work. 
in our day in anticipation of that day when we will gather with a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and together, not as sojourners and exiles anymore, but as sons and daughters, we will give our God, this God, the glory he is due. You can find every episode of the Radical Podcast as well as thousands more free resources on our website, Radical.net. And be sure to subscribe in your podcast player of choice to receive each new episode. Don't forget registration for Secret Church 17 with David Platt is now open. This year's theme is Scripture and Authority in an Age of Skepticism. And you can find all the info you need by visiting secretchurch.org. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. We'll see you next week. Thank you.